Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. Hello, job shop enthusiasts. I am very excited to have today's conversation with Arnett Heller. Arnett and his brother Matt are third-generation co-owners of Central Screw Products. Beyond having survived since 1925, Central Screw is a fantastic model of how a small shop can and will thrive against foreign competition. Arnett spent many years in the early 2000s traveling to and doing business in China and now has deliberately positioned his shop as high-touch tech. We will get back to that phrase in a bit and uses that to continually remove operating inefficiencies to be hyper-cost competitive against Asian rivals. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Arnett. Oh, thanks for having me, Jay. So, Central Screw Products competes in the cutthroat world of vehicle components, heavy truck suspension parts, as an example, and you are growing. A big part of that is what you had shared with me earlier that you learned from spending many years traveling to China. So let's start there. You graduated from college, and then what happened? Yeah, so I... um so I graduated from college and worked uh, very briefly um, outside the family business and then was asked to come into the family business. And um, at the time, we were doing a lot of work um, for a, um, a large tool manufacturer. Mm-hmm. About 85% of my dad's business was with this tool manufacturer, and then the other 15 was the truck suspension vehicle components. And um, I was basically brought in to manage this work. Um, and we, uh, in 2001, the customer called one day and they said, uh, yeah, you know, we're canceling all the orders. Hmm. And there was nothing that we could do about it. And, uh, and you know, they, they picked up all the work. I mean, it's the story that you would have read about at that time. And they just one day we were humping and the next day we had nothing to run. And so my dad uh, had uh, the brilliant idea um, that I should go to China and, and figure it out. And uh, so, you know, armed with my uh, engineering degree and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> I guess his backing, uh, he put me on a plane and, and sent me over there. And, um, you know, at the time it was, I, it was crazy. I mean, we could, you know, buy things cheaper than we could buy material to bring them in, in our shop. And, um, 
but you know, it's, that was, it was never really, um, you know, my dream or my brother's dream. Um, you know, we always wanted to, uh, you know, live in the U S and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, run a men and, and be part of, you know, be engineers basically. And, um, as more, more engineers than distributors. And, um, so, you know, we spent most of our time over there, not only sort of, you know, figuring out what, what was good and, and what could go over there, but also what, you know, how we could position ourselves back home. And, and, you know, we sort of came out of the whole thing, you know, with our, our other background in, in automation, realizing that, you know, we were all, it didn't really matter where you lived in the world. You, you were eventually going to be looking at automation to increase your margins um, more than, than low cost labor. So want to talk about some of the things that you learned over in China. And you mentioned that China was clustered in their manufacturing. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So when, when we talked on the phone um, the other day, yeah, we were talking about that. So, so towards the end of our tenure, um, when we were going over there all the time, so we started going over there in like 2001, 2002, and, you know, I had a platinum rear end for, you know, five or six years as I would fly back and forth. And, um, and, and, uh, you know, 2007, 2008, um, sort of all the talk was that people were setting up these manufacturing clusters, right? So if you were into electronics manufacturing or you were into uh, pump manufacturing or valve manufacturing, you would basically find the area of the country that was focused on that type of a component. And then you would, um, you know, invest money basically in, in that area. And the goal was to have all your suppliers and sub suppliers in that area to reduce costs because the Chinese um, economy was, they didn't have the, the uh, transpa- transportation infrastructure that we have in the U S and so, you know, moving something from a city, everything was geared to be exported. Nothing was moved to move, uh, geared to move from one city to another domestically. Mm-hmm. And so as we were traveling around and, and, you know, and people were, you know, telling us that we should invest, you know, all sorts of money um, over in China, we, you know, took a long, hard look at, you know, what we had back in Detroit and, um, you know, you know, it didn't take long to sort of connect the dots and realize that we were sort of sitting in the heart of, you know, arguably one of the greatest manufacturing clusters that the world's ever seen in, in the abilities and the, um, and the things that can be made, um, you know, within two to three hours drive of Detroit, Michigan. So, so in other words, Detroit is one of the mega manufacturing clusters in the world. And I liked how you put it is you asked, yourself and your brother asked himself the question of how can I live in Detroit and not in Shanghai? And yes. Yeah. 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 And that was, you know, that was a big thing. You know, we sort of took our families over there and, and gave it the, the college try and, and, and each decided that, uh, you know, we would rather, um, you know, spend our time and, and raise our families, you know, back home, um, instead of, uh, instead of offshore, you know, and I, I made the joke with you that you can't ride your jet skis on the weekend in, in, in China. So uh, it's just not something that, that they do over there. 
So, but one of the one of the notes I was going to make, Jay, I heard the other. This was maybe a year ago. We were talking to a machine tool salesman, mm-hmm. and Macomb County, which is just it's like northeast of Oakland. We're in we're actually in Troy now, but but Macomb County, which is northeast of us, there's more. Um, you know, the Haas VF2 would basically be like the machine tool, like that size machine tool. There's more of that size machine tool in that county than anywhere else in the world. You know, whatever it is, whether it's a, you know, it's a, a Doosan or an Akuma or a mm-hmm. Mazak, you know, that, that size, that VF2 size, there's more of those in Macomb County, Michigan than there are anywhere else in the world. So. Looking back, well, what, when's the last time you were in China? Um, let's see, maybe, maybe three years ago. It's been a while. It's been three or four years now um, since I was there. How have you seen their custom manufacturing industry change since when you first started going over to the last time you were there? Is infrastructure still a problem? Well, I mean, I mean, I don't know, you know, my, this is just sort of my opinion. Um, You know, the cost structure has definitely changed, right? Like, so, and obviously now with, with the current political climate and the tariffs, you know, that's even, even more so, but you know, the cost structure has changed with, with labor rates going up. um, And, and it's still, I mean, it's still an export dominated economy. um, Although, the Chinese, you know, they're trying to supply more, you know, have more domestic demand and, and use that for domestic demand. I mean, more than anything, I think that um, their economy or the, the job shop markets changed in that they have more access than ever to, you know, American companies. I mean, they, you know, I know I get, you know, emails almost daily from, you know, uh, people, you know, in China looking to, uh, sell us components. Um, you know, it's not, we don't even deal with that. We just erase them now. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that's, you know, the greatest area that I've seen changes is sort of how they market themselves, um, into <laughs> the U S and then, and then even more so than that, um, you know, when we go out and we talk to, when we talk to people that are sort of, I, I want to say on the fringes of our industry. So, so maybe, you know, buyers that, that buy, you know, that, that, that don't buy machine parts every day, but buy prototypes every once in a while or, or stuff like that every once in a while. A lot of people seem to think that, you know, everything's made in China, right? Like, like, and, and, and there's easy ways, I guess, for, for our buyers to, to access that market, you know? So, one of the things that that we are just really in tune with is making sure that you know we're doing everything we can to be as customer service oriented as possible um you know so that mm-hmm. you know our customers don't have any reason to go look basically so sounds like customer service can be a strength of a US based job shop over Chinese competitors, what other strengths of U.S. manufacturers or what advantages do we have in the U.S.? Oh, I think, I mean, I think that 
you know, customer service is um, greatly downplayed. You know, when you buy a, a custom component as a buyer, you know, you want the part that you ordered. You don't mm-hmm. want something that's close. And, you know, the, there's, there, there's the biggest issue that, or not issue, but the biggest difference we found is because the labor rate is, is so cheap and because of the, it's just a different culture. Um, it, it, it was always okay um, working with our suppliers in China to make something that was close enough. Right. And then you would, and then there was a lot of negotiation about whether it was going to work or not. And stop, wait, stop there. That that's really important because you hear about that, but sounds like you had firsthand experience. Can you give us an example or two? Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, our, our, I don't have, it's been so long that I don't, I'm trying to think of a, of a story right off the top of my head, but I mean, our trips over to China were always spent sitting around a table negotiating on whether we could use certain parts that we had rejected from our quality department. And, 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 you know, so for us, it it became just a, you know, we ended up with, um, you know, having to say, you know, there's, you know, you can do one of three things, right? You know, the parts aren't right. We can either scrap them here. You can, you can pay us to rework them or you can replace them. And that, you know, and we can't negotiate outside that. And, and, but, you know, as a, as a buyer, um, negotiating whether it's going to work or not is, is really becomes like sort of a technical expertise that, that maybe a lot of our, a lot of our buyers don't have, and they don't want to, well, they don't really have time to include their entire engineering department for every part that they're trying to buy. They just want it correct. And, and, and so being able to um, provide you know, that service or that component correctly with the quality documentation that it requires, I think continues to be an, an incredible um, advantage. Uh, The trick is, is not everybody needs that, you know, some people can get away with stuff that's close enough. Right. So. Are there any particular lessons you've learn and apply to central screw and should also say that you have a sister company Detroit Gunworks as well which is located within the same facility so any lessons learned that you brought back with you that made your company stronger um i mean yeah i mean the the biggest one was just you know you know automating out the figuring out how to automate out the pushing the green button, right? Like, I mean, it's a, you know, from, from my research, from my reading, you know, the the Chinese went into manufacturing, you know, because it's the quickest way to increase wealth Mm -hmm. in your country, right? You know, you're adding value to a component. And so it's, you know, they have, a billion people that live below the poverty line and they're trying to figure out, you know, how to, how to feed those people. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so you see basically the same people running machines, they are just, instead of being American, they're Chinese. Right. Mm -hmm. And, but 
you know, towards the end of our tenure, all our shop owners that we worked with were looking at robots. They were looking at automating, right? Like, like even though they were paying, you know, a tenth, if you will, of what we were paying in wages, you know, they're still trying to get that lower, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's sort of the existence of the shop owner, right? To figure out how to do it as effectively as possible. And the, and the, you know, the stat that we would always use is that, you know, there's more jobs every year that are, there's more jobs lost to automation and efficiency every year than are ever lost to offshoring, right? Like our industry is so good at being effective. Um, and I think that sometimes, you know, we forget that and want to go and, and sort of place blame somewhere else. Um, but, but sort of looking at it more glass half full, right? If I can mm-hmm. be more effective than the other guy, then, um, you know, the world's sort of my oyster, right? So. Well, it seems like automation and the phrase you use, the high touch tech is at the core of what is driving the growth of your shop. So explain a little more about what that high touch tech means. Yeah, I mean, for us, that basically means, you know, you know, so, so my brother and I, you know, grew up going with my dad, you know, my mom would want us out of the house, right? So my dad mm-hmm. would take us into Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's, that's how we grew up. We grew up in the shop, right? And, and so the, you know, the, the high touch tech is, it, it's just that concept that, you know, we, we need to, you know, a rising, what is a rising by rising tide um, lifts all ships, right? So we need to spend the time to train our operators and everybody that works here on how to use, you know, the newest technology. And then we have to be effective at it. But at the, you know, our customers aren't paying us to run our machines as much as they're paying us to provide them with a solution, right? So mm-hmm. being able to operate all our equipment effectively and be able to prove w- what we're producing and, um, you know, be able to understand what the customer wants and, and provide that to them um, as quickly as, as they need it um, is sort of essential to, to what we're doing and what we found and is that you know, the um, machining used to, and still is today, you know, we, we, we like to, most shops like to have a division between like programming and, and operations, right? Like, like we have programmers and then we have people that, that run the equipment machinists. And, and for a long time, you know, that was, that was a necessary division. You know, machinists were, you know, really adept at at making these, you know, machines run, um, you know, precisely like the guys that used to run my dad's automatics and would have hammers and they'd, you know, smack the machine gently in some places and a lot harder in other places. And all of a sudden the parts would come off. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, with the advent of computer controls, um, the programmer becomes, we were just talking about it today. He, he or she becomes, so much more of the gatekeeper on how this equipment's going to run. And, um, 
so, so what we found and where we've really driven ourselves in the last four or five years is we've been, we dedicated ourselves to the digital shop, not as much in like IOT and, and everything being connected, but more in being able to simulate what we were doing and improve our, so we, we figured it all went to simulation and rigidity and anything that we could, if we could simulate it, then we would know that it was right, but it was only going to simulate and, and act the same way on the machine. If we understood the parameters of the machine and we made the machine and the tooling and the operation as, as rigid as, as possible. And so that's finally starting to pay dividends where we didn't expect it, which is on the quality side, because we just get repeatability that we weren't able to get uh, before. So let's step back here. Simulate, simulation and rigidity. When you started out on this journey as a digital shop, is was that the framework which you set up or is it something you came to realize as you started implementing pieces of the digital shop that that's what you were doing within that framework? No, the rigidity came long after we started doing the simulation, right? So, so how did you decide you know, on simulation? We decided on simulation because, um, and, you know, we talked about this a little bit the other day, you know, we struggle with what everybody struggles with in this industry is finding good programmers, right? Mm -hmm. You know, being able to find somebody um, who can run, you know, or who can program our equipment. And, um, you know, when they write the program, the first thing that, you know, usually happens is, is they go out and they break the first three tools. Right. And, um, and so we were tired, you know, we were tired of buying really nice equipment. Um, you know, it took us a long time to save up for, for our equipment and, uh, you know, you buy it and, you know, you can basically either buy a Ferrari or you can buy the equipment that we have and then somebody would crash it. And then they'd be like, you know, uh, my bad, you know, I don't know what do you right. want me to do about it. And, and so, the simulation really came out of um, being tired of, of that happening on our shop floor. And it also came out of the um, silliness that we believed around cam software, where you go out and you spend a fortune on cam software. And then they say, oh, well, now we have to write a post for you. And you say, well, I have, you know, this type of machine that you consider is like, the Ford F-150 of machine tools and that, and they, mm -hmm. and, you know, and then go and they have to write like some custom post. And the first thing it does is run, you know, crashes your machine. And so we decided that, that we, you know, in order to, we looked at the cam programs and thought we're going to need to be, you know, to, to, we need to allow our programmers more flexibility to, and, and, and to be more creative within, within reason to process the parts as effectively as we want in the future. Mm -hmm. And we need to have some type of a, of a stop in place to be able to check that before it, it hits the shop floor, because with everything moving so fast, you know, these 
spindles are expensive. And, and so that's how we decided on simulation along with a, um, a seminar my brother went to at Procter & Gamble where they showed that they can't even manufacture a diaper anymore with humans, that you know everything's automated and they simulate everything in their facility. And so we, we thought this was sort of the wave of the future and we decided on simulation and then a lot of the stuff has come after that where, we're, where we say it's simulated correctly, but then the part wasn't what we expected and we mm-hmm. sort of dive into that through continual improvement and then say, okay, you know, what do we need to change um, to do that? And, and the first thing that, that we saw and that we still see when we get new operators is using sort of a, you know, like a Rube Goldberg type contraption of a tool put mm-hmm. in a really expensive machine that's, you know, never going to hold size basically. So, so the first simulation you put in was the running of the cam programs which software did you bring on board and are you st- and what are you using today yeah w- yeah we use vericut mm-hmm. and um and you know for you know and it took us it took us a while you know to to get it up and going um and now we're it took us about 12 months to be really happy with 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 the post that the, we call it the Vericut post. They call it the machine build. Um, and what, um, what were some of the challenges along the way? What? Because I would assume they would just like cam software worked out of the box, but that's not the case. Yeah, I mean the the challenges are, you know, understanding it, it's it's understanding your machine tool. Um, mm-hmm. so, so understanding machine tool and and all the things that the machine tool does, because a lot of people take that for granted. You know, like one of the things that we still laugh about is, you know, a post and you're like, oh, what's, you know, what's that M code? And somebody's like, I don't know. It just, it always posts that out. It's like, <laughs> you can know what that is, right? Like, like, you know, what mode are you in? Like, like, like you can't. And, and I think that's the biggest challenge is really like starting to question um, starting to question the code that you're putting in the machine. Mm. And, you know, I don't want to say like minimalist because that's probably the wrong way to put it, but, but being, you know, acting more like a programmer and, and, and saying, I only want, I only want things that are going to work. I'm not going to put extra garbage into my programs on, um, you know, right. in order to be able to, um, make them right. And so I think, you know, that's still, you know, one of the things that we struggle with the most because it, you know, a lot of places that stuff's all figured out, you know, and sort of building it from scratch, you know, we bought these machines and, you know, we wanted to figure out how to run them. And so we've really dedicated ourselves to, you know, figuring out what all this stuff means and, and then getting that built into the simulation software uh, just, just took a lot of time. So who in your company did that? Was that something you you did yourself, your brother, or other team members, yeah. or yeah, or a combination? <laughs> yeah, we have a we have a small engineering department. So I mean, we're pretty small. We're we're twenty people, um, mm-hmm. basically. And and you know, my brother and I are engineers. And um, so so I did a lot of it. And then um, you know, I have a 
I have a gentleman that I work with named Eric and, 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 you know, between the two of us, you know, basically I would program the part. He would simulate the part. Then I would go run the part and then I'd feedback the information and we'd fix the simulation. And, you know, after we did that about a hundred times, um, we had something that, that seemed to work pretty well. <laughs> so that iteration piece is something that I think gets overlooked in a lot of implementation because at Rapid, what we did well didn't just happen instantly. It was a constant daily improvement, incremental improvement and iteration of the process. You like to say you have a strict adherence to the process. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we would always say the strict adherence to the process. It's almost like that. It's like a street credibility thing, right? It's like respecting it. Mm -hmm. If you, um, you know, everything that we're doing, you know, at the end of the day, we're cutting metal, right? We're, mm -hmm. we're taking hard metal, you know, harder metal, and we're jamming it into softer metal and expecting it to come out with, you know, these insane tolerances that we can't even see with our eye, right? And so the, the concept, you know, if we go back to like seventh grade science, right? And, mm -hmm. and we, you know, if we don't, you know, sort of respect the process and use like the scientific method um, and, and look at our variables and our failure points, um, we're not going to be able to get the same thing every time. And so, you know, being in like that high mix, low volume world, you, you have to have certain things that you can rely on. I mean, and this is, this is sort of where we struggled five years ago um, is that every job that came in here was like, it was like completely new from the ground up, right? Like nothing mm -hmm. was safe. Um, mm. Right. Have people that would use, you know, completely different tools, completely different holders, and 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 not not looking at every step of the process and saying what can we harmonize, what can we standardize, what can we not make, what can be the same today as it was yesterday. I think it's essential unless you want to go insane in this business, um, because so, you know, if you don't do it, nothing runs ever. Another way of saying it might be going back to the rigidity is that when you remove variables, when you remove that variability, you impose rigidity on a process. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, you know, the, the, I guess the negative side of that or where, or where we see that coming and biting us in the rear end is that when when we go out and we, you know, look in the marketplace and, and we try to bring people onto our team, they immediately take this standardization and this rigidity as a, you know, as like sort of like a shot to their manhood, right? Like that mm -hmm. they can't be creative, can't, you know, that you're clipping their wings. And, and, and what I feel that people are just short-sighted about a long time, a lot of times it's like, no, I'm not clipping your wings. I'm trying to allow you to use that brain to do something that's really, really hard. And if you don't have, you know, 90% of it already done, you're never going to be able to, to figure out the last 10%, you know? And mm -hmm. so for us, 
um, you know, sort of as a, as a constant, you know, improvement, right. And like a dedication, as we said, to that process, um, it's allowed us to, you know, get a lot better. Um, and, uh, and, and we had, you know, I can tell a story about this, that, that was really funny. So we, um, we were doing a lot of work on our Detroit Gunworks side for a, a large uh, firearms manufacturer. And we have um, one of the many uh, certifications we have is we're able to make uh, suppressor components. Mm-hmm. And so every part of a suppressor needs to be made by a company that has um, these special uh, tax stamps. And so anyway, we were making these baffles um, out of Inconel for this suppressor, um, you know, for our customer. Mm-hmm. And we were only able to get six minutes of tool life out of a drill. That's it. That's all you could get at seven minutes. You would have catastrophic failure. And so, but the manufacturer said we were only supposed to get two minutes out of it. So, you know, getting the six was we were getting three times what the manufacturer had recommended. And, you know, so when we talk about like adherence to this process by, by being able to, you know, use all the functionality of the machine tool and mm-hmm. actually, you know, at six minutes, it hit tool life. You know, we had a redundant tool in the machine and then we would, you know, flip the inserts and we were able to run, you know, that job just, you know, night and day. Now we had to change a lot of tools, but um, it allowed us to really be successful on some of these jobs that are really hard to cut. And what I remember about the job is that it had a really goofy tolerance and we couldn't buy a drill to size for Mm -hmm. the ID. And and so we were basically drilling it like two thousandths oversize of what the tolerance was. And, and so we called the customer and they said, no, you know, we need, you know, we need that to be perfect. And we said, okay. And so we, took this drill out and went to a smaller drill and we decided that we were going to circular interpolate the hole so that we could get this one within size. That material wouldn't cut at all. Like we couldn't get it to cut at all. And, Hmm. and so, you know, being able to then call the customer because we would just burn up end mills and they were, you know, a hundred bucks a piece. You'd stick the end mill and it'd break. And so calling the customer and saying, look, Mr. Customer, here's what we can do. Right. And, and sort of, laying it out in a very systematic fashion instead of a, you know, throw up your hands, right? Mm -hmm. Like being able to provide those options and really talking, you know, technical people talking to technical people, they were more than happy to accept what we were producing because we were able to do it at a rate and a speed um, that, that met, you know, their requirements. So I got a couple takeaways there going back specifically to what you were able to achieve you got three times the tool life, so that gave you a competitive advantage because you didn't have to buy as much tooling as the other guy, and you also didn't stop your machine from running because your process dictated that you were going to swap out drills at six minutes, no matter, even if it was still working fine. So that's a great example of process the time that you invested in figuring that out and then implementing it into the process just made the parts run smoothly at a lower cost than someone else. I like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and in and in, I mean, and in that material, um, as as a lot of us struggle with, you know, daily, you know, the super alloys, the failure is catastrophic. It's not, you know, you don't see a nice a nice worn breakdown that you can see with your eyes. You know, this tool goes, you know, tool one goes, then tool two goes, then tool three. Like like you just start blowing stuff up at a high rate of speed, and so. You know, what it what it also did for us is, you know, going back to like that strict adherence to the process, we just feel really comfortable sort of tackling more difficult problems um, if there's parts of it that we know that we can put to bed, basically, um, through through engineering it out. So what other simulations have you brought on board? You said you simulate everything in the shop now. What does that mean? I mean, it basically just means it means our Veracut, and it means that we've, you know, bought and 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 put the posts or not the posts, but the machine models together for all of our equipment um, on the shop floor that's that's running in our high mix, low volume environment. So for a long time, um, we have so we have some Akuma lathes on our shop mm-hmm. floor, and they have a. Um, like a function on them where on the control you can simulate where you can simulate the job. And for a long time, um, there were members of our staff who were basically equating the simulation on the machine tool to the, to the Veracut simulation. And, you know, the Veracut simulation is a, it's a complete kinematic model of the machine tool, basically, um, you know, in virtual space, you're creating reality. The simulation on the machine tool is more of a graphical interface, and 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 we continued to really struggle, you know, using, you know, a different type of simulation tool. And so, what we do now is we, you know, we're very rigid, and a job does not go to the shop floor unless it's passed through simulation. And the the problem with that is it makes us more expensive. It it cost money to build the simulations and it and it takes time but we're finally starting to see an incredible decrease in our setup time um on the shop floor because of that um which is you know something they told us we were going to see and 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 it took us a while to become believers um of that but there's always that tempting you know um i guess you know the the voice in your ear saying don't worry about it. You know, this one's fine. Just go put it in the machine. (laughs) So, you know, and so I guess that's, that's sort of what I mean of it is that it's, uh, you know, more of a cultural thing that we, that we all had to buy in at every level. Right. Because oftentimes, you know, it's me or my brother that's saying, no, go, just go get it done. And then, you know, we're eating crow later, later in the Mm -hmm. day because we did. so. So you have a real long term perspective these implementations are a journey and you shared that you have a philosophy of what you don't do is go fast and break things and that everything is a work in progress. For example, let's talk a little bit about quoting and estimating software. Can you share your journey there? Yeah, so so our journey in in quoting and estimating um, is, uh, I mean, it is. It's it's much like the rest of the shop. You know, we were taught. You know, my dad 
sort of ingrained in us um, that, you know, this is, you know, don't screw this one up, you know, no, don't go bet the farm. This is, this is the family business. Right. And so Mm -hmm. we are, we're aggressive in our business and we're aggressive in our actions um, and what we'll try, but we're, we're not particularly aggressive when, when things really matter. Right. So we'll, we'll test things out. Right. And so, you know, Detroit Gunworks is a great example of that where we, you know, we have always wanted to make really difficult parts for airplanes and helicopters, right? Like all roads to us always lead to doing parts like that. But we felt that, you know, going out and, and, and showing up at Boeing and, and, and saying we can make your parts um, when we had brand new equipment that we didn't know how to run, you know, that just wasn't our plan. And so, you know, we developed Detroit Gunworks to sort of train ourselves in, in what we um, identified as a, as a lower risk in, industry. Um, and, and now, you know, we're sort of making the move up to play with some of the, the larger players in the world. Um, but for, you know, quoting and estimating, I mean, we were taught to quote and estimate in a very traditional format, the way that um, you would quote a, a screw machine. And um, about three years ago, we were, you know, we had bought these really cool horizontal machining centers and, and we're removing all this material and we were doing a lot of work in titanium. And we were trying to figure out a better way to estimate because we were having trouble, um, you know, there were, you know, a hundred features on the part and we were having trouble laying out every one of them features and and figuring out how how long it would take the machine to do it and so what we started to do was track the uh our material removal rate so we would you know basically take the cycle time and the volume difference between the start and the finish of the part and Mm -hmm. and then how fast we could remove different types of material because we can remove aluminum faster than then titanium and on different machines it matters different blah 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 and we sort of call that like our secret sauce mm-hmm. and then um and then we started to quote that way um and we you know you would use the volume difference and so so paperless parts was really cool to us because we you know had actually gone out and we'd talked to you know multiple you know and we didn't try that hard but you know multiple people we knew who programmed computers and were like hey you know there has to be a way that you know, because I would spend hours in SolidWorks getting the volume of parts, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, clicking on measure, you know, volume, like, oh my God, like I've done that way too many times. And so, you know, when I saw the presentation for paperless parts and, and, you know, what I think is just incredible about that software is the, you know, geometric interrogation that it's able to do on the parts and it's able to get us the values that we need um, really quickly. So then we can go sort of put our special take on it and we can get our cycle times, um, you know, nice and quickly. And and so far, you know, we're still, once again, we're still, we're using the software, you know, as of today to, to produce parts for our customers. And it's, it's as accurate as we were beforehand. We just think that we can make it more accurate by, collecting better data off our shop floor and, and, and being able to plug it in. So. Great. I think switching gears here that 
one of the gems on your website are the case studies. And I was blown away when I started reading those. And just to give the listener a sense, there's seven of them on the website. I'm going to read through the titles because they get so nitty gritty and granular. 3D printed CMM fixtures to reduce costs. Unlocking big data value with cutting edge SPC. Precision plug gauge calibration. That's automated. Success measured beyond tool life using smarter tool management features in the Makino A51NX mills. Parametric programming improves quality and reduced costs. This one, internal macros developed for standard geometric shapes, simplifying programming and improving quality. And then two more. I want to I want to get into the details on a couple of them here. So, but before we do that, why did you decide to do case studies? So we did case studies. Um, you know, our, our our marketing department. We're like, you know, we're sort of like Ferris Bueller. You know, we've we've never had a lesson, right? And um, mm-hmm. and you know, we're a bunch of engineers, and we're trying to figure out how to sell this stuff. And and we had a variety of people through the two thousands that would come in to our shop, and and we like everybody else were you know making our website and trying to have a web presence and and this that and the other, and our. Uh, the people that we were working with at that time were trying to get us to improve our search engine optimization. And, and, and we sort of got caught in this, um, I don't know what I would call it. It was a circus. I don't know what else to call it, where they were going out and somehow they were, I don't know, there was like a way to trick the search engines. And basically that's what these guys were doing. Mm -hmm. And, and, and we really know it. And, 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 and when we finally realized that this was bad and, and this all had to stop and everything, you know, through this, I would ask, well, how does, you know, how do the bots work? And, and, you know, and basically it was explained to me easily that like they look for content. And so I said, well, instead of tricking it, why don't we just write content that people care about? Oh, well, why would you ever do that? You know, it's sort of like, that's what the bot's supposed to be looking for. So, so anyway, the, the the case studies, I mean, that's what they are, right? They're, the case studies are our attempt. Um, you know, we believe that we're that we're experts, and if we're not experts in our industry, we're positioning ourselves to become experts by by what we're doing every day. And and we believe that our customers want that. You know, they want us to be able to be the best on our machines. And the way that we can sort of show that is by by doing the case studies. Um, but our case study process is really funny because, you know, we'll solicit case studies sort of internally and we'll just get like a lot of garbage. Like mm-hmm. we'll get a lot of things that I just wouldn't want to put out there. So we're pretty critical of what goes out there. But when we do put something out there, you know, we want to share it and, and we want, you know, we want to be collaborative with it. And, and, and we're not going to, we, we just believe that we're going to get a lot further by sharing what we know and, and what we can do than we are by trying to keep it all internal and, um, you know, closed door and just telling people we're awesome. Um, that 
You're so, not afraid. You're not afraid of people copying you and competing with you, doing uh, shortcutting what you already created. I mean, I'm. I mean, I'm not worried about that. I mean, if they can, that's that's great, right? Because they're gonna get there. I mean, this industry progressives so quickly they're going to get there somehow anyway right somebody else mm -hmm. is going to get there um so you know really for us we're on a treadmill and we're trying to get there faster than the other guy right and 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 our customers you know we the case studies were really validated when we had a potential customer come in and he had five of them printed out in his hand and he said this is why we're here, right? You know, we flew all the way across the country to see you guys because of, you know, your case studies. These are important and we want to see this. And then, and then we could show it to them. And I think that that, you know, that, that type of um, transparency, you know, for us is, uh, is, is really, really important. So, and that's, that's what we're sort of gearing, gearing ourselves up for. So the case studies, you can point back to this customer that the case studies brought in business to your shop and significant business. Absolutely. No, we can absolutely point back to that. And, 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 you know, what we like to show, I, I guess whenever we write one, we like to show that it's, you know, the theme is that like we're solving a problem, right? Like mm -hmm. we're, we're using some type of technology that we have and we're unlocking some potential and we're, and, and we're solving a problem. And, and, you know, we all know that there's so much technology in the world. A lot of times technology is invented without a problem in mind. Right. And so, you know, us being able to, to take this technology and, and put it in, in, in not really monetize it, but yeah, you know, in a, in a way, you know, show our customer how we're using it. Um, well, it gives, is, gives, is, you, it gives you the credibility. So what yeah, I want to dive into, yeah, I want to dive into one of these, Arnett. But as a shop owner, I wanted to always let people know what we were doing as well. I wasn't afraid of competition because I looked at it in two, two different ways, and you probably look at it the same way, in that by the time someone implemented what we were sharing, we were going to be already on to the next piece or even more pieces than, than the first. So yeah, the other part, yeah. And then the other part was though, by sharing, it forced us to get better because we knew that we couldn't stay still that someone else, and to what you said, whether we shared it or not, somebody else was going to come up with the same idea. So it was a forcing function to make us continually improve, continually innovate and move the ball forward. Yeah, and, and I mean, the formalization of the process, right? Like taking something you did and making somebody produce like the book report, it really, you know, it, it really forces us to think a little bit differently because um, especially in a shop, you know, we're always just sort of going from one job to the next, right? But to actually have to write it down and, and put, uh, you know, put the, you know, the takeaways and, and why they're good. I think that that's a, it's sort of a, a, a great process that, that makes not only, you know, you as a, as a shop owner, but, but really the people that work for you, you know, they're really proud of like the work that they put in. Right. It's, it's really sort of neat to document it like that. So. That's a great point. Yeah. Employee morale is a win there as well. 
So case study number five, error-proofing operators with intelligent probing routines. And the subtitle is probing with, hopefully I'm saying this right, POCA, yoke, safety gate, reduces downtime. Yeah. Quick summary, what problem did this solve? Okay, so this, this is a great idea. So the problem is, is when you, um, so when you simulate something, you simulate it in the ideal state, right? Mm -hmm. And the simulation automatically assumes that your operator loaded the part correctly. Mm -hmm. and, and so what we have found is that, you know, when a, when a guy stands out there and, he, and he's loading parts over and over and over, um, you know, he can make mistakes. And, and, uh, and if he makes mistakes, you know, that can lead to a machine crash if a, if a part's misloaded incorrectly. And even worse, so we use a, we use a system, uh, so the machine crash is bad, but we what, what is the, con yeah, what's the consequence of a machine crash? How many hours of downtime and rough cost? Well, I mean, I mean, it's, it's always, it's, it, it varies, right? It can be a small crash that might only cost you, you know, a shift and, you know, a couple hundred dollars worth of tooling. Um, or it could be, you know, you, if we smack one of our Makino spindles into, you know, a really big piece of steel, I mean, it's a $40,000 spindle. So it can be pretty, pretty bad. Um, and so the, um, where was I going with this? Um, the stock, oh, so, so there's, there's two issues. So the first issue is, is a misload and we have a machine crash. The second issue is that we use a crimping system from a company called Lang Technovation. Mm -hmm. And, and it basically, we crimp the material and we put like a, like a, a female um, indentation in the material. And then our jaws have these teeth and they, they hook into that material. And, and if we torque it down correctly, the, it allows us to take pretty um, incredible, uh, once again, we get the rigidity. And so we get to take pretty incredible like depths of cut and, and we get higher material removal rates. Mm -hmm. If the material is not loaded correctly, um, then the, the machine, we've had the machine throw the part too. And then it throws Part, it breaks a window, you know, that's a safety problem. Then the machine has to go down to get the window fixed. Um, so, so basically what the pokey oak is, is it's using, you know, the probes to say, is this loaded correctly? You know, and on a horizontal machining center, you know, you might load up, let's say you load up eight pieces and they have an hour cycle time a piece, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you're really irritated if it gets six hours into it and then it throws apart or something like that. So, so really the, this case study is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's using the machine tool to verify that what we are expecting is coming out of the office is, is going to be the same every time. And it's also, you know, and talk about something that we learned in China. So, so one of the things that we learned in China was, was about saving space. Right. And, and I mean, mm -hmm. my dad's shop, like everybody else's shop, you know, it, there was a lot of yelling involved at his shop and a lot of blame. Um, okay. And in China, you know, um, we learned, you know, that, that there would always be in a negotiation. There's always an out. There was always saving face. Right. Like the way to get something done was never to back somebody in a corner 
where they had no way to get out and you would just crush them, right? You mm-hmm. always wanted to allow an out and then you ended up in a win-win situation. And I think this poke yoke is a great example of, of using that on a machining side. It gives, you know, instead of the operator making a mistake and then the machine blows up and mm-hmm. he's on the hook for, you know, $50,000 worth of repairs and feeling terrible, it just says you're wrong and it kicks it out and he fixes it, right? And and, gotcha. and so it's, it's such a better way to, you know, if we think about, you know, another thing that my dad would preach was, you know, be kind to those people on the shop floor. You know, they're the ones running the machines, right? That's why you get to sit in the front office because they're doing the work. Mm-hmm. And, and and we talk about that a lot. Like, like, how do we make the operator successful? And, you know, there's ways to do and, and automation. I mean, that's what it does. It makes the operator look incredibly successful because all of a sudden he's just crushing it every day because he's using the machines to their fullest ability. And, and this is a good example of, of a way that we as engineers can go that extra step and provide error proofing so that that guy can do his job better and, and, and look all look better for everybody at the company. So I like how you look to the operator and are very conscious of trying to not put the blame on them, but make them a better contributor to the company because you use a lot of robots at your company, but people are not robots. We are going to make mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. And like you said, standing there for, eight hours a day, the odds that you're going to not put in one part exactly right, it's not inconsequential. So taking that out of the equation, taking that variable away with what you've done here is fantastic. I want to make sure the listener understands in this case study, which you can print out, you have a specific example here of a suppressor tube where you had large drills and a solid carbide reamer that cost a lot of money and took six weeks to get. So can you just talk about that specific example and in particular how you justify increasing the runtime from 210 seconds in the program to 240 seconds, essentially adding 30 seconds of probing and checking, but why you think that that is an overall win. Yeah, and I'm trying to, um, so what what the case study is not showing or we're not talking about is, so those parts were patterned across a tombstone, horizontal machining center. And so the 210 second cycle time was actually times, I think it was times 12. I think we were getting 12, 12, six, six, and then two tombstones. So 12. So we were getting, um, you know, more like 20 minutes of runtime out of those parts. And they were, as I recall, they were a hard metal and mm-hmm. if the part loaded incorrectly, we were having, you know, the first problem that we talked about where the, 
the rougher would come in to face the part off and it was and it was engineered to take you know let's say thirty thousandths off and if the part was loaded wrong you know the first cut it was taking a hundred and fifty thousandths off in titanium and it was burning up our and then we weren't able to hold size so so it was you know a portion of it was to kick it out and make sure that you know the operator knew he loaded it wrong but the big portion, it was really a quality issue um, mm-hmm. where our rough were um, disintegrating too fast. And then we were losing the overall length was important on that part. And so we were losing um, the, the quality side of it. And, and what's neat is, you know, it's going into another system that we have, but we basically run like an SPC system mm-hmm. and we were um we're seeing the, the length dimension start to go out of control where it was in control for a long time. And then it started to go out of control. So we weren't necessarily running bad parts, but we were, you know, running stuff all over the tolerance. And so the pokey oak stuff came out of a corrective action where we were trying to figure out, you know, we're like on the Makinos, we should be able to hold two tenths overall mm-hmm. length and why are we seeing it move 10 thousands, you know, this isn't making any sense. And our operators were like, no, nah, it's fine. You know, whatever they're, you know, they're within spec. Don't worry about it. Right. And so the engineering department though, took it upon themselves to say, no, this is what it's supposed to do. And, um, and, and then, you know, we were able to probe it and, and, and get it to work. And, and it really, you know, the added benefit was an increased tool life because we weren't, right. we we're going into the cut. Once again, the process, we're going into the cut with the same thing every time and getting the same result. So the case study, I also want to mention that you show the actual G code of what you're doing. And to me, it's just really cool. Uh, You're showing it for the probe, for the logic, for the machine, but you're showing the end result that works every time but there's an in-between portion. How did you get from the problem to the solution? What did you try but didn't work? How did you keep up the morale to keep going? We rarely hear about how the sausage was made, but I think it's important for shop owners to realize it's not a straight line and there's bumps in the road, but it's worth it at the end. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess this is a testament to, you know, the people that we have in our team. They're just, they, they, I guess it's good and the bad, right? The good is, is that they don't mind being part of the struggle. The problem is if there's times when we just sort of exist in the struggle, right? Um, (laughs) We never get out of it. But, uh, but, you know, that's where, you know, you know, I've had people tell me, and I don't say this lightly, that they like working here because it's, you know, they get to they get to fail, right? So you get to try this stuff out. You get to learn it. I think probing is still this black art, unfortunately, where they sell it to us on the machines, and then you have to, like, figure it out. And, um, and, and it works, um, and it's another... You know, it's another great example where, you know, Verica is, is great because you don't have to shut the machine tool down to run the mm-hmm. stuff on, on machine. You can try it out in Verica. And, you know, we don't have the probing package so, for Verica. So 
eventually we have to go onto the machine um, and, and do this. But um, yeah, you know, it was just going through it. It was, we had deemed it unnecessary thing. And, and, you know, we mm-hmm. gave people the time and on it and, and, you know, daily, I guess that's part of being a small company, you know, daily, the guy that, you know, put a lot of this together was, uh, you know, having to deal with quality problems because we were loading the machine incorrectly. So for him, you know, it was, a, it was great. He could go back to some of the other stuff he wanted to do once, once we got it done. But, but yeah, no, he just sort of kept doing it and, and, um, and, and figured it out. Um, and, uh, I think that's great. Another case study that you have, which we're getting close to where we should wrap up. So we're not going to go into the details like we did on the last one, but it's 3d printed work holdings. And then you also have a second case study involving 3d printing in the using that in, in quality fixturing. So 3d printing is a technology that you've brought in house. You are using it all the time. It looks like in the two case studies documents specifically, what would you say to a shop owner who's looking at bringing 3d printing in house? So for our, CMM tooling, it is, it's priceless. And we've been doing this, we've been using our 3D printer to do um, CMM tooling for five years. And I don't know how we would get away without it. The case study on the JAWS is a great case study, but I'll be perfectly honest. It doesn't work 100% of the time. And we have struggled to hold stuff as tight as we want to um, in work holding. I know that somebody is going to get there, but mm-hmm. we went to IMTS basically looking for machines to be able to build work holding. And we, 95% of our work holding is still built traditionally right now because of the tolerances that, that we want to be able to hold. Um, so when so, you say tolerances, are you, which materials are you talking tolerances and are you talking overall tolerances or are you talking talking surface finish what what yeah so so i'm talking so our biggest issue with with 3d printing um is that like we don't want any z lift in our parts right Mm -hmm. so if you look at a study and and you know we have jaws and the jaws go and they and they hold the part um it's really we're having trouble figuring out how to get the 3d printed part flat enough so that we can get the flatness that we want to get the six side on our parts. Um, in which, in which materials? You, um, you mean you mean like uh, well, three D printed. Yeah, are you looking at three D printed metals, three D printed plastics? We're only looking at plastics right now. We have not dove in to, to metals yet, um, and so and so we have a Form Labs printer, and they have some type of material that uh, it's like a plastic and it's you know mm-hmm. uh will work in oil basically and that's what we've tried to use um for and it works it works as like a plate to bolt stuff down to if you don't need super tight tolerances like if you have plus or minus 10 we'll say 
But once mm-hmm. we get down to, you know, we need to hold plus or minus one, um, we're, we're still doing traditional work holding. But for, you know, for all our automation, like when we're building um, robot grippers, we use 3D printing. When mm-hmm. we're doing, um, we use it a lot for a few of our customers that send in, you know, drawings that were made in 1964 and they want us to make the part. Um, and they haven't made it since 1964. So we'll 3D print something. You know, once we put it in a CAD, we'll send it to them and say, is this what you want? They'll say gotcha. yes. And then we'll it. So we use it. We use it all the time. Um, I see it being um, essential to our business. Um, we just haven't, we don't, we don't see the um, ability to hold the tolerances and the precision yet that we're able to hold on our machine tools with it. So we could jump into any of these other case studies you are implementing such cool technology, the, the work holding, the way that you are using macros and programming. Any, anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Um, I mean, the only thing I would add is I just think it's, I think it's a great time to be in manufacturing. Like it's, it, it's, it's so cool. It's so exciting. You know, we've sort of, we've What's exciting about some, what, what gets you excited? Well, we, for me, it, I'm excited because we've moved past some of these, like just complete unknowns, like, like, you know, manufacturing, like, moving, you know, all over the globe and stuff like that. Like, like we've gotten through that. We've gotten through, you know, a shift and, and being more of a world economy. And, and, you know, what is exciting for me is the, you know, the, the continued need for the products that we produce every day. And what is, what's fascinating about it though, is that we have, a, you know, we have a, a group of people who are, moving into the job market where, you know, they expect to get things Amazon prime, you know, they expect to get it tomorrow when they order it. They don't, you know, I'm gen X. Right. So, so I still have like, I remember like the rotary telephone, right. I remember like, you know, you know, having an antenna and not cable. Right. But like this, this concept that like, I want it, I want it now and I'm going to pay to get it is, um, you know, more than anything, it's starting to play into our industry and, and being in the prototype world for years, you know, we saw it, but now we have companies that are really, you know, they're really going after that buyer and they're really providing that buyer with a service that, um, that maybe he or she didn't have 10 years ago. Right. And, and, and so to be in that world and, and realize, how many people are out there and instead of, you know, looking offshore or looking in a different country for components, you know, they're looking down the street. They're trying to figure out how they can find a machine shop around the corner who can deliver them something tomorrow. And, and I think that that's just a really neat problem for those of us who are sort of, you know, I'll say it, I'm dedicated to this. This is what I do. This is, this is fun for me. You know, and I've told people that for a long time. Oh, did you do this because your dad did it? No, I did this because 
I don't do well with authority and I get to do whatever I want to do every day. You know, I get to make parts. And, um, and, and for a long time, I, I guess I questioned my, my livelihood. I questioned whether this was still going to be here in 20 years. And today, more than anything, you know, I'm realizing that our ability to support a customer and provide them quality components on, on time, um, is, is just completely necessary, right? I think it's neat, you know, and if I had to put in one little jab, I, mm-hmm. I got a note today on, um, on exometry and like the way that they work. And, and the thing that I guess I would hope the other shop owners out there do is, you know, it is a business. It's a viable business. It's a great business. Like don't let anybody go in and, and take your margin because you think that, there aren't people out there that want to buy it, you know, like, like, and I, and I, that, I guess that's what I always see is we get so many people in our industry that are, that are trying to come in and they're, and they're sort of trying to sit between us and our customer because the machine shop has this, uh, I guess a stigma of like, you know, not answering the phone and being too busy to talk to you and taking six weeks to get you a quote and everything like that. And, and if we just sort of turn around and say, well, if I went to McDonald's and it was like that, would I ever go back? You know, and we ask that question, um, you know, and, and take a long, hard look in the mirror. Um, we have, we just have like some really neat information and, you know, the guys and girls that have been in this for a long time, they know how hard it is. They know how hard it is to make good parts and, and I think it's just a really exciting time to be in the industry when, when we're figuring, you know, when companies like paperless parts are figuring out how to help us monetize that, um, that skill. I think that's great. And that, that makes me really excited. So. Well, Arnett, this is a perfect place to wrap up on such a positive note. I am so grateful to have the chance to chat with you because you hear so much about China, but here we had it from you firsthand, somebody who was going over there and working with the Chinese manufacturers and then understanding what you had to do in Detroit to be able to live there instead of Shanghai. So huge insight for me and how you are approaching specific technology implementations Again, I encourage the listeners to go to your website, centralscrewproducts.com, and really read the case studies. Understand that the technologies are out there to reduce that variability and impose rigidity on the process. And that is what the structure gives you freedom. So thanks so much for coming on, Arnett. Anything else that you want to add before we say goodbye? No, thanks for having me, Jay. I really, I really appreciate um, getting the time to uh, to speak to you. This was, was great. Excellent. Well, listeners, thanks for supporting the Job Shop Show. We hope you can leave us a good review and share the podcast with your friends. Thanks for listening. And in the spirit of today's episode, keep innovating, automating, so that you are not evaporating. Have a great day. <laughs>